The episode you're about to hear was initially released as a Patreon exclusive. These episodes are typically shorter than the ones you're used to hearing, but we think they're still interesting, and we hope you'll agree. Hello and welcome to Something's Not Right. This is Olivia. Tonight, I'm going to tell you about the weird Nashville connection of would-be presidential assassin John Hinckley Jr. But first, I want to ask everybody to stay tuned at the end of the episode for information on how you can help us get to CrimeCon this summer. Just before 2.30 p.m., March 30th, 1981, President Ronald Reagan, in office 68 days, left the Hilton Hotel in Washington, where he'd been addressing an AFL-CIO conference. As he left the lobby and walked through a thronging crowd to his waiting motorcade, a reporter shouted, Mr. President, in an attempt to ask a question. But before he could pose his question, six shots rang out from the crowd. It was immediately clear who was shooting. 25-year-old John Hinckley Jr., still had his 22 caliber revolver leveled at the president. Alfred Antonucci, a labor official from Cleveland, was standing nearby and hit Hinckley in the head and shoved him to the ground as he fired his third shot. The first bullet struck press secretary James Brady. The second hit a Washington, D.C. policeman who had recognized the noise as gunfire and turned his head to locate Reagan. As a result of being dragged on by Antonucci, Hinckley's third bullet missed Reagan's head by inches as he was being pulled into the limo by a Secret Service agent. The fourth shot struck another agent as he used his body to protect the president. The fifth harmlessly hit the bullet-resistant glass on the limo, and the sixth and final shot bounced off the limo, entering Reagan's body under his left arm, lodging in and partially collapsing his lung before lodging in his body an inch from his heart. In the meantime, another Secret Service agent dove on top of Hinckley in an effort to prevent him from being attacked or killed, as Lee Harvey Oswald was. Antonucci and another labor official nevertheless began to punch and kick Hinckley in the head repeatedly until the agent fought them off. Reagan, of course, would survive and Hinckley would be tried in 1982, but found not guilty by reason of insanity. Until 2006, he was confined to a mental hospital permanently and then was allowed periodic visits to his mother. He was permanently released in 2016 to live with his mother, which he continues to do. After the trial, Hinckley maintained the attempted assassination was, quote, the greatest love offering in the history of the world and has yet to express regret. Hinckley, as most everyone knows, was trying to impress actress Jodie Foster, with whom he'd been obsessed since she played 12-year-old sex worker Iris in the 1976 film Taxi Driver. In the movie, Travis Bickle, the eponymous taxi driver played by Robert De Niro, attempts to protect Iris, but is also obsessed with a campaign worker, played by Sybil Shepard, for a senator running for president, 
and at one point in the film, nearly shoots the candidate. Hinckley saw the film dozens of times and became obsessed with Foster. After reading she'd enrolled at Yale, Hinckley took a writing class there. He wrote her letters and called her on the phone, speaking to her at least twice. She rebuffed him. Hinckley's mania then manifested itself as an obsession about killing a president, which he nearly did in 1981. But he'd nearly done it before. And that brings us to the odd connection to Nashville. In October 1980, then-President Jimmy Carter, a month before the election he'd lose to Reagan, was on the campaign trail. Tennessee, as hard as it may be to believe now, was a swing state at the time. As part of the solid South Democratic stronghold and as a neighboring state to Carter's Georgia home, the president had a fighting chance to win the state's 10 electoral votes, so trips to the volunteer state were part of his campaign strategy. On October 9th, Carter was scheduled for a town hall-style campaign stop at the Grand Ole Opry House on the grounds of the Opryland complex. Hinckley's obsession with Carter had first led him to Dayton, Ohio, exactly a week earlier, which he considered a test run for the shooting attempt he planned in Nashville. Hinckley later said he got cold feet once he arrived in Nashville and actually planned to fly back to New York. When he returned to the airport, officials suggested he check himself through the x-ray machines, something that was possible at the time. When his bags went through the machine, the operator spotted something suspicious and searched the bag. Inside, a 38 caliber, two 22 caliber pistols, handcuffs, and a box of cartridges. Neither of the 22s were the one he'd used to fire on Reagan, as they remained in airport police custody until the next year. The cartridges were high-velocity hollow point that would explode when hitting the target, according to the police report, similar to what he would use in Washington the following March. Hinckley was arrested and appeared before Judge William Higgins, who set his bail at $62.50, which Hinckley paid and set a court date for October 14th, which Hinckley did not show up for and his bond was forfeited, and his handguns thus stayed with airport police. It seems unusual that a man who was an obvious flight risk, after all, Hinckley was on his way to board a plane and was not a Tennessee resident, would get such a low bail. It would be about $200 these days. It also seems unusual in this post-9-11 world that someone trying to board a plane with a cache of weapons would be let go at all, regardless of their status as a flight risk. One of Hinckley's psychologists later testified that Hinckley said after his arrest and release in Nashville, Hinckley felt more confident about going after Carter and that he would have done so, except that in the time Hinckley was detained and went before Judge Higgins, Carter had boarded his own plane for a flight to New York and a scheduled appearance at the United Nations. In fact, had Hinckley caught his originally scheduled flight, he would have been in the vicinity of Carter when the president landed in New York. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to suggest that the eagle-eyed security man at Nashville International probably stopped an assassination attempt either in Nashville or New York. It also doesn't take a lot of imagination to say that the rather casual attitude with which Hinckley was treated in Nashville led to the attempt on Reagan. A month after Hinckley and Carter's trip to Nashville, Reagan won the election. He won Tennessee, by the way, by only 4,000 votes. At that time, Hinckley turned his obsession to Reagan, leading to the events of March 30th. But how did that happen? 
After the attempt on Reagan's life, the FBI and Secret Service, as you might expect, launched a massive investigation to determine how Hinckley could have been stopped and to determine the best practices going forward. For starters, Reagan never exited a building without cover, nor did he ever cross an airport tarmac uncovered. While these are not hard and fast policies for the Secret Service, most of Reagan's successors have, to some degree, followed his lead. The investigation also found that while the Secret Service had extensively screened the attendees who were inside for the speech at the labor conference, they allowed a rope line for unscreened individuals, including Hinckley, to be built within 15 feet of where Reagan exited the hotel. The investigation also found, via TV news footage and newspaper photos, that Hinckley himself had been in a similar position in a rope line, which was similarly for unscreened people, at the Carter campaign event in Dayton a week before his arrest in Nashville. Furthermore, Hinckley, despite having been arrested with three guns trying to board an airplane in a city where Carter was flying to a city where Carter would be, was never on any sort of Secret Service watch list, despite the FBI being notified of his arrest with weapons at an airport. When the assassination attempt on happened, the pieces fell into place that Hinckley had been in Nashville stalking President Carter the same day we arrested him here in Nashville. Daryl Long, who was one of the airport security officers who arrested Hinckley in Nashville, told the Murfreesboro Post in 2012. The FBI, Reagan was shot, was quick to trace Hinckley back to our city. We had confiscated Hinckley's three guns, a 38 and two 22 caliber pistols, and still had them locked up when the FBI came and took the weapons off our hands. The assassination attempt on President Reagan. This is when the U.S. attorney in Nashville came unglued upon learning Hinckley had slipped through the system without a red flag going up. That's when the U.S. attorney ordered the FBI in future instances involving weapons to be prepared at the Nashville airport within 30 minutes anytime we called about weapons in the future. One of Long's fellow security officers was called to testify before a congressional hearing about how Hinckley went undetected. While Hinckley's arrest in Nashville was well known in the days immediately following the Reagan assassination attempt, in fact, the New York Times reported it on the front page the next day, the connection to Carter wasn't made clear until 2012 and 2016 hearings related to his release, when prosecutors made the pattern of stalking with violent intent part of their argument in urging his continued institutionalization. One of the more far-reaching after-effects of the Reagan assassination attempt was the Brady Handguns Violence Prevention Act, signed into law by President Bill Clinton in 1993. The law is named for Press Secretary James Brady, who was permanently disabled by the shooting and died in 2014. His death was ruled a homicide, though Hinckley was never charged. Brady and his wife Sarah became tireless advocates for gun control, leading to the bill. Among its major provisions, background checks for firearms purchases. When Hinckley purchased the 22 with which he shot Reagan at a Dallas pawn shop, he provided a false home address and an old Texas driver's license as proof he was a resident of the state. And had background checks been instituted, it almost certainly would have flagged the purchase. Hinckley bought the gun in Dallas just four days after his arrest in Nashville. Thank you, as always, to our patrons, Justin from Mysterious Circumstances, 
Audrey Arndt, Hope Brazel, Patton Fuquay, Allison Klima, Astrid Nyer, Kathy Lind, Janet Logan, and Terry Quillen.